Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Moderna Momentum, positive news on the biotech's vaccine trials lifts stocks. Goldman's gains, market turbulence means soaring revenues for the U.S. bank. And revised relations, President Trump revokes Hong Kong's special trading relationship. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. to first move and welcome to another hour showcasing the role that technology can play in improving and saving lives. Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella will join us live to discuss it, their latest alliance aiming to improve both farming and internet connectivity across rural America. Plus, the CEO of Zipline is going to join us to tell us how drones are aiding caregivers in the fight against COVID-19. Technology also helping drive stock futures higher this morning, as I've mentioned, following news that Moderna's COVID vaccine is showing positive results. It's sent to enter late stage trials later this month. Vaccine optimism has been a big theme throughout the week. Actually, stocks gained Tuesday. The tech was a relative underperformer, as you can see there, just relatively value outpacing uh, vroom. Let's call it that with red hot Tesla up a mere 1% in yesterday's trading session. In the meantime, Apple is on the rise at pre-market after winning its $15 billion tax battle with the EU, a.k.a. it doesn't need to pay it. Goldman Sachs, meanwhile, the latest bank to report results this morning, too. We'll get the details next. And to Asia now, where Chinese stocks fell as tensions with the U.S. rose. All the details on that coming up as well. Good news from South Korea, where unemployment eased from multi-year highs. Though I have to say in Japan, the central bank lowering its economic forecast and its outlook, but offered no new stimulus moves. I think the U.S. Fed Governor, Lau Brainard, said it best when she described a thick fog of uncertainty at this moment about the outlook. That message echoed in many ways by JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon yesterday and Goldman CEO David Solomon today. Big challenges remain. Let's get to the drivers. So Christine Romans joins me now. Wow, Christine, but what a performance for Goldman Sachs here. The Federal Reserve helping to take uh, Goldman Sachs to the second highest quarterly revenues on record. And I'm only half joking. It's what a performance. Really, it's as if Goldman Sachs were built for exactly this environment. When you look at the advisory business, the investment banking, and then just that amazing, uh, amazing revenue um, from, from trading. You know, turbulent markets are exactly the kind of business that Goldman Sachs is, is primed for. And it did very, very well um, in, in this quarter. Uh, and so you're seeing, I mean, I think you're going to see a big gain in the Dow when it opens because, you know, the Dow is 30 stocks and Goldman Sachs is going to have an outsized uh, 
uh, an outsized influence here overall in the market today. Just a strong quarter. But you're right to point out that all of these CEOs, the bank CEOs we've heard from so far are saying that the, uh, the future is uncertain and they're putting aside an awful lot of money to try to cushion and weather uh, what could be um, busts from consumers and from, um, from corporate borrowers. So on the one hand, you have this boon to the balance sheet for Goldman Sachs. On the other hand, still a very uncertain recovery ahead. Yeah, I love the way you put it. This is a bank that's built for this kind of environment, less exposure to consumers, but even yep. they setting aside one and a half billion dollars here for potential credit losses. And when we look over the past two quarters, it is billions and billions and billions of dollars that these banks are putting aside because they simply don't know how bad the damage is going to be. People have been cushioned for the past quarter, as you and I have discussed many yep. times. What comes next? We're facing this sort of, I guess, stimulus cliff, right, in the very near term if Congress doesn't do something else. The Fed has basically promised what I would consider unlimited support for the markets. And that might be one reason why, uh, you know, markets are, are have been doing so well over the past, you know, uh, the past three months or so. But still, that uncertainty hangs over everything. You know, you've got this promising results from Moderna from its vaccine. Uh, that's incredibly favorable for the market at the moment. But it's not certain. And uh, a vaccine getting in into the, into the hands of, of hundreds of millions of people is still months and months and months away. So one wonders if the stock market here is priced for perfection at, at the moment. You know, it's just impossible to say. And we'll keep saying it, I think, Christine, at least for now. <laughs> you yes. and I are broken record on that. Yeah, yeah, moving swiftly on. Christine Raymond, thank you so much for that. China has vowed to retaliate after President Trump approved a law that allows the sanctioning of Chinese officials. He also issued an executive order to end the preferential trading status for Hong Kong. David Culver is live in Beijing. David, we were only just talking about this tit-for-tat response from Beijing when it sees action from the United States. But for Hong Kongers, this is, again, a very pivotal moment, a pivotal decision by the United States. No question, Julia. And you're right. I mean, it, you were talking with Christine there about it being a broken record. I mean, it seems to be the same here as we're saying yet again, increased tensions between the U.S. and China. However, you could expand that now and say the West and China. This most recent one involving, obviously, the, the global financial hub that is Hong Kong. And may in the future, we'd be saying, you know, was Hong Kong because it seems to be changing rather quickly. I mean, President Trump making good on his threat to revoke that special trade status, essentially getting away from the uh, exemption of certain tariffs that Hong Kong enjoyed for so long. But it's now all rooted in this national security law, this law that was really coming into effect July 1. Mainland China, Beijing here, officials saying that they're trying to crack down on secession, subversion, terrorism, and collusion with foreign forces. And they look at the U.S. in particular here. So now what does this mean going forward? Well, Beijing is saying they're going to come back strong with necessary measures, as they put it. They're a bit vague on that, but they do say that they are looking at sanctions against U.S. personnel as well as entities. And as you mentioned, Julia, it comes after they have already issued sanctions against some U.S. lawmakers for uh, another issue altogether, Xinjiang. And that is uh, the far western region in which there are widespread allegations of human rights abuses against the Uyghur ethnic minority there. And then add to that complications with Huawei and, and the UK. And then add to that the South China Sea and the tensions rising there. So it's just this culmination of really 
uh, a worsening relationship between the U.S. and China and one that's added uh, more threats going back and forth and, and now claims for more sanctions. We'll see what that means. I mean, it, it remains to be seen how exactly Beijing intends to respond with specifics. It's quite fascinating because you've just built up all the layers of the ratcheting up of tensions that we've seen to do with many different topics, notwithstanding, of course, uh, COVID-19 in in the absolute middle of it. Interesting to see Trump in that press conference yesterday saying, look, the trade deal's still intact because China's still buying the agricultural products that it promised to make. At the core of this, a trading relationship that matters It is. You know what's really interesting, and, and I listen closely to what President Trump had to say last night, and, and I'm always listening to see if he's going to directly criticize President Xi, because I think that would be a game changer in all of this, certainly when it comes to the trade deal in particular. Now, he was asked if he had spoken to President Xi. He said no, and he doesn't have intentions to. But then on the Chinese side of thing, we often look at how they're characterizing President Trump. And they never really criticize him directly. They'll criticize the U.S. in general. They'll go after certain lawmakers. Certainly they'll criticize Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. But I think when we start to see a shift in that rhetoric, and if we see each leader being called out directly, that would signal a real change here. Yeah, we're watching exactly the same things. No plans to talk, but no criticism. David Culver, thank you so much for that. All right, on to the oil market now. Awaiting news today from OPEC and its allies. An advisory committee is discussing future production levels. The cuts in place at the moment expire this month. John Defterius joins me now. John, the question here is whether they decide to extend those cuts or they ease them back slightly. And that's going to come down to what demand looks like going forward. What do we think here? Well, they've had uh, the meeting now, Julia, for about 45 minutes, and they made their intentions very clear in the first 15 minutes that they're ready to go to phase two. And they've had to do some fancy footwork, if you will, to get to this point. If we look at uh, Brent for the year, it's been a very tumultuous ride. Remember, the price war back in March, and then we had the pandemic really set in. Uh, By the third week of April, we were negative on WTI and had $16 on Brent. So we had the Saudi minister, Abdulaziz bin Salman, and his counterpart, Alexander Novak, very much on the same page today saying that, look, uh, the status quo is 9.7 million this month. The agreement was to go to 7.7 in August. That's what they intend to do right now. They think the market's starting to stabilize. And the OPEC Secretary General, Mohamed Barkindo, in the last 24 hours, Uh, signal day shift, that's for sure. He said that the market's nearly balanced right now and they expect demand, to your point, Julia, to recover to 7 million barrels a day in 2021. Uh, We have to keep in mind it's down 9 to 10 million barrels a day this year after that drop of nearly 30 million uh, in April. There is one tricky point here, Julia, and it goes back to the Saudi minister. Uh, He has suggested to Iraq and Nigeria, two OPEC members, that because you didn't make the cuts in May and June when everybody else was doing so as deep as you promised to do so, uh, when we go to 7.7, come August, you have to add to your cuts to make up the difference. So he's trying to send a signal to the market that it won't be 7.7. It'll be slightly higher than that. Uh, And the tricky part for those countries is that because of the pandemic, Julian, they're so reliant on oil right now for say 90% in the case of Iraq for its revenues, it's hard to go to the people and say, we're cutting more production as prices start to rise. But they had phone calls with the Saudi minister. And remember in September 2019, when we spoke to him during his first interview, when taking the post, he said, "Uh, we agree on this OPEC plus arrangement, but Saudi is not gonna carry the can alone. 
And lo and behold, 10 months into that process, that's what he's doing today. The market seems to like it, Julia. We're up better than 1% for both uh, the WTI and, and Brent at this stage. The market seems to like it, but some pretty tough conversations now and in the future, I fear. John Defterius, thank you so much for that. All right, coming up on First Move, the pandemic has made us thankful for two things we rely on every day, the security of our food supplies and our need to stay connected with technology. The CEO of Microsoft it comes up next to tell us about a new alliance bringing the two together, plus no protection, no problem. The company shipping PPE by drone, serious stuff or a lofty ambition? We'll discuss. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move live from New York, where positive medical news is helping boost U.S. stock market futures yet again, this time from biotech firm Moderna. Its COVID vaccine is showing promise in early stage trials. Phase three trials, more expanded, are set for later this summer. Moderna shares are currently up more than 12 percent pre-market for the year. Shares have risen almost 300 percent. In the meantime, AstraZeneca is up more than 3% in London trading too. Reports say it may update investors on its COVID vaccine as soon as tomorrow. AstraZeneca is developing its vaccine along with Oxford University. Now, of all the lessons learned during this pandemic, two, I think, are particularly pivotal. First, the need to ensure the security of our food supplies. And secondly, technology that drives connectivity, efficiency and helps us foster innovation. Well, this is precisely what the new strategic partnership between Microsoft and Lando Lakes is targeting. Lando Lakes is one of America's largest farming cooperatives, and the alliance with Microsoft will boost productivity, sustainability and broadband connectivity across rural America. And I'm very excited to say Beth Ford, president and CEO of Lando Lakes and Satya Nadella, CEO of Microsoft, join us now. Great to have you both on the show. Fantastic to uh, hear about this new partnership. Satya, I just want to begin with you because this sounds like a, a fantastic example of taking cutting edge technology out of Silicon Valley and putting it to work in the real economy and impacting real lives. No, absolutely, Julia. First of all, it's great to be with you and Beth uh, this morning. Uh, it, you're absolutely right. For us, it's our core to our mission to ensure that it's not about celebrating technology for technology's sake, but it's the impact. And we're now taking the oldest industry we have, which is our farming industry, and making sure that agriculture can benefit from some of these advances in AI and cloud and IoT. And so this is a pretty broad partnership. We're very excited about what uh, we can do together, both in terms of putting deep insights with farmers around sustainable farming, around precision agriculture, also connecting markets for sustainability with uh, the soil cap, you know, re the ability for soil to recapture carbon, uh, as well as broadband connectivity in rural communities. All three of these are part of this deep partnership, and we're very excited to be working with Beth and team uh, to bring this all. Beth, I'm sure you share that excitement too. There's clearly already plenty of science in your operations and in what goes on in farming already. But now we're talking about data-driven farming and pre precision agriculture. What does it mean in practice for, for the farmers? Well, this is, this, yeah, this is about not just efficiency, but it's about optimization. And Satya said it very well. It's like he's, he's reading our mind here that 
you know, this this data can be used and and the analytics and the leverage of the tools that Microsoft and the expertise that Microsoft has can be used by farmers to improve the efficiency of their decision making. They're making multiple decisions right now in uh, in the year. Um, and at the same time, they can optimize both their profitability and their sustainable production. Such an important component, leveraging data acre by acre to improve decision making. And that's what this partnership is about. We do have deep expertise. We have trillions of data points, but leveraging the tools that Microsoft brings and their expertise with their FarmBeats program, their Azure AI, it just improves the efficiency. And then the, the unified architecture will allow a farmer to make an efficient decision in season. Yeah, I mean, there'll be a lot of people watching going, hang on a second, you've got a lot of data, but how do you even collect that data when you're out in the field? Sat, you talk to me about farm beats, because I know it's something that you've employed in places like India and in China, using things like sensors and drones, literally to collect this data. What sort of lessons have you learned over there that can be applied in rural America and, and to Beth's point here, be put to work? No, absolutely. And also in uh, Carnation, which is just down the road from uh, where I live, uh, we have done this, which is, and Beth talked about this, which is in some sense, uh, Land Lakes has been doing this for a long time, uh, where they've been collecting this data, analyzing this data and putting the insights from that uh, into the hands of farmers. And now with this new technology, whether it's IoT sensors, which have now become very cheap, so that means you can have even higher precision microclimate predictions which of course can lead to better precision agriculture, better sustainable practices because of the power of cloud through broadband connectivity being brought essentially to the edge, which is the farm. So it's the combination of these secular technology trends, the uh, IoT, AI, and cloud coming together to take what Land Lakes has historically done. In fact, one of the things that was just stunning for me to learn about was the amount of data that already was there and also the platforms Beth and team have already built. And now we want to take it to the next level. Yeah, it's about combining all of those. Um, I, I have to say, I was astonished as well. You're already leading in your field in terms of um, the use of data in farming, um, Beth. You know, one of the obvious concerns here will be, look, if we're talking about greater efficiency, if we're talking about optimization using technology, that will come at the cost of jobs. What's your response to that? Does it just create different ones or, or will there be job losses? This is not about a job loss um, issue at all. This is just about the leverage of technology to improve decision making. Um, so this is not something about replacing others. In fact, our agronomists work directly with farmers. It's kind of a belly to belly business where we're out there, but this allows them the right level of insight to provide a differentiated piece of advice to the farmer. And literally this is an acre to acre decision making um, capability. So as Sacha mentions, we're, we're leveraging this and we're leveraging this deep data and our tools are our seven tools through our Winfield Technologies business, but then leveraging them in a way that allows a farmer, for instance, to improve their sustainable production. Should they, for instance, go to no-till? Should they go to variable rate application of fertilizers? What does that look like? And then what's the return on that investment? Because at the same time, we're trying to improve sustainable production using data and analytics, we also have to make sure that we have a farmer that is profitable for the long term. So this isn't about a job replacement. This is about an enabler for the agronomist and for the farmer to improve their decision making. Upskilling, which I know is also key to 
something else that you're both also collaborating on and you've done your own work individually, but this is about making sure that we don't see, particularly through the last few months, a widening of the digital divide. And it's something that we've seen a lot of people benefit from and be able to cope with the last few months as a result of internet connectivity for certain parts of America. And we're talking millions of people, particularly in rural communities. Lack of access to broadband and internet is a, is a critical problem. Satya, you're working on this as well. No, that's absolutely right. Because what the foundation to all of what Beth and I are talking about is access uh, to the cloud, access to the internet, uh, and that's why broadband is so critical. And so we are taking the initiative we have had with Airband, bringing it together with Beth's work with the community centers across 19 states. Uh, and this is not just about farming and access for farmers uh, for all of what is the technology that they are going to deploy for precision agriculture, sustainable agriculture, but also for the communities. To your point earlier, if you think about the rural community today, they are going to thrive if the entire community is able to get the education, the upskilling, the health, and all of what, you know, uh, e-commerce and other facilities directly reaching them where they are so that they can then uh, have as a community more access to the latest and greatest technology and skills that come with it. And that's why broadband is such a fundamental right. And we are very, very uh, excited about this partnership there. Beth, I know you're passionate about this too. I am. I mean, this is so exciting to hear this. It, you know, it's never just one thing. It's never the technology for technology's sake. And this is why I love the partnership with Satya and the Microsoft team. This is an ecosystem. Vibrancy of our rural communities in partnership with a safe, affordable food supply and then creating jobs is critical. It's a national security issue. As I said, this is a pillar of our national security. We have to have vibrant rural communities. So technology is an enabler, for instance, to close this healthcare gap. We, are, we have a shortage of say 40,000 doctors in rural America. School systems lack um, broadband and technology access. So education is underinvested in, and here we are, all of us working from home. We have to have access to healthcare. We've had partnerships in addition with Microsoft, with the Mayo Clinic, with the Cleveland Clinic, with Minnesota Health and other partners to allow access for um, the population of rural communities to contact a healthcare provider. We heard from the Mayo Clinic, for instance, that they had more telemedicine appointments in one day than they had had all of last year. So wow. this is an accelerant, it is an enabler, and it is critical for the stabilization and the vibrancy of these communities that are critical to the United States and to our farm um, system and our food system. You know, all of this is such a, a key component of many of the discussions that we've been having, particularly in recent weeks, inclusion, uh, driving inequality and trying to tackle that as well. Diversity, of course, not just here in the United States, but, but more broadly. Satya, when I, when I think about diversity, instantly I think that, that the technology firms, the big tech firms get a lot of criticism here. What's your view on how best to drive greater diversity at the management level, not just within a business? How do we go about that and achieve that? I mean, it starts with representation, Julia. You're absolutely right. I mean, at some level, any um, talk of diversity has to start, in our case, from the inside, where we need to have uh, in fact, I was just looking at our intern class. It's an amazingly diverse class. And to your point, it needs to be reflected right all, to up, all the way to the top. And so we've now got commitments, whether it's about race, 
uh, and especially for the African-American, Black and Latinx community, as well as gender, uh, and to be able to have actual metrics. In fact, I myself am measured on it, uh, metriced on it, and paid on it. And so we now are going to take representation. And of course, representation can only be sustained if you have a culture of inclusion. So that's an everyday practice where you have to work in every meeting, every promotion decision. Uh, the lived experience cannot be different from an espoused culture, and that's all the hard work ahead of us, but we're very, very focused on it. I like the idea of a, of a CEO in particular being benchmarked on this too, because it has to go right to the top. Beth, this in many ways is a, a personal thing for, for Lander Lakes. You're based in, in Minnesota, obviously where George Floyd lost his life. What does it mean for, for you and for your farmers what more can be done by business? Yeah, yeah. of course, our, our farmers are nationwide or around the world, but for the community, I, this was terribly painful. I mean, the, the dis disparate outcomes um, for the African-American, the black community in Minneapolis is just unacceptable. And this is not something that just I say, but most of the business leaders, and there are multiple Fortune 500 companies headquartered in Minneapolis, for instance. So I think Satya's comment about it starts from the top is exactly where um, the the CEOs of the businesses in the Twin Cities are. We can we have to continue to make progress. And one of the things we have to do better is we have to listen. We have to listen to the the, the fear, the issues. Um, that's not my experience, of course, because I, I don't live that journey. I haven't lived that journey. So until we really understand that and then take action, we're going to have this kind of this kind of issue. Um, in addition to some of the things that Satya was talking about, metrics, um, uh, we're, we're focused on, for instance, on conscious bias training for all of our employees, being transparent about our diverse populations within our organization, but then also outside in our communities. How are we engaging to make sure that there's inclusion? Because it's not about whether we are hiring appropriately for diverse candidates. It's about whether they're feeling some level of inclusion at work and in their communities. Um, it, it advantages everybody. So it, it is particularly painful. It's very difficult. Um, but I, I do believe there's a commitment from the leadership um, and from uh, certainly our organization to make progress. So you very quickly, I want to ask you about what seemingly is the White House stepping back from banning student visas for international students that aren't actually in school in the United States. You came, I believe, to the United States on an H-1B visa and, and you stayed here. So this, again, is a, a personal thing for you. What are your views on, on this decision and, and what does it mean for American innovation? No, absolutely. We welcome uh, the White House uh, decision yesterday. Uh, in fact, I came on a student visa, an F-1, and then I did go on an H-1 and then ultimately through citizenship. I, I, I always speak from my own personal experience. I'm a product of two great American things, American technology reaching me where I was growing up so that I could dream the American dream, and then the enlightened immigration policy of this country that let me live uh, that dream. And so I will always advocate for it. Uh, I think the United States, it's in our self-interest, quite frankly, uh, to have an immigration policy that allows us to bring the best and the brightest, as well as show our humanity, uh, because that, I think, is the soft power of this country. Uh, it is what makes this country unique and different, and I hope we preserve it because I think that makes America stronger. 
Two great examples, I think, of great American leadership and um, American innovation too. Both of you, thank you so much for joining us on the show and uh, good luck with the strategic partnership. It looks um, fantastic. Beth Ford, thank CEO you. of London Lakes and uh, Satya Nadella, CEO of Microsoft. Thank you so thank much. Thank you once again. Thank you. All right, we're back after this with the market open. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are open and up and trading this Wednesday. A busy news flow again this session. Positive news, as we've discussed, on COVID vaccines helping send stock markets higher. As you can see, the U.S.-China trade tensions are also something to keep an eye on, too. Plus another stellar performance from the Wall Street trading desks. Goldman Sachs rallying after reporting revenues of more than $13 billion in Q2. That's the second best on record bond trading revenue surging 150%. Let's uh, give thanks to the Fed's emergency aid programs for uh, the support here. Goldman's also boosting its loan provisions by another $1.5 billion, just the latest bank to set aside more money for bad loans in the second quarter. What was it Christine Roman said? Built for this kind of environment. That's Goldman Sachs. Now, economic reopening winners like the airlines and the cruise lines also gaining ground in early trading. These stocks are among the most volatile on Wall Street and have been all throughout this year. The favorites of the day traders, too, on sites like Robinhood. Wow, they're gaining this morning. All right. Another story today that we are following closely. President Trump issuing an executive order on Hong Kong ending the preferential trade and commercial relationship that's been in place since 1992. Their freedom's been taken away, their rights have been taken away, and with it goes Hong Kong, in my opinion, because it will no longer be able to compete with free markets. A lot of people will be leaving Hong Kong, I suspect. This executive order coming just days after a recent survey by the American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong showed just over three quarters of American companies there say they are concerned about the new national security law. But nearly half say they personally have no plans to leave Hong Kong. Joining us now, Tara Joseph. She's the president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong. Tara, always fantastic to speak to you. Thank you for joining us uh, this evening. Of course, your time. That survey, of course, was taken before the executive order announcement from President Trump yesterday. Do you think this changes the mindset for for American businesses operating in Hong Kong? You know, it's been a difficult year all around the world because of COVID and a recession, et cetera. In Hong Kong, it's like the perfect storm. We have COVID, we have a recession, and now we're caught in a huge uh, tit for tat between the United States and China. The national security law, which came into Hong Kong, has been very disconcerting for the American business community. And now uh, we are losing that special economic status, that special safety and comfort factor of us being there. Um, And this is really all about the U.S. and China spat. Um, It's very difficult to digest, and it means we're really in for a new normal in Hong Kong. I want to walk us, want you to walk us through some of the findings of this survey, because I do think actually it, it's very interesting looking at the details. I mean, clearly people are concerned, but it's the lack of clarity on simply how this security law is going to be used. That's one of the big conundrums here for businesses. Yeah, and there are two sides of the survey. So in terms of the concern part, 
Um, it's the ambiguity of the law in terms of really understanding what it means and how it will be enacted. Um, there's also worries about the extraterritoriality of the law and whether companies uh, who say something outside of Hong Kong could be liable for the national security law of Hong Kong. That's another one. And Hong Kong is really Hong Kong because of its rule of law, its internationally recognized rule of law. There's a sense now that with the national security law that it could be at risk um, of being upended and that is very disconcerting to people. And also it's the sense of being able to speak freely, um, to be able to express one's opinion. There's worries about self-censorship, et cetera, happening all over the place in Hong Kong. Now, there's the other side of the issue. As you mentioned, 50% of our membership say they want to stay in Hong Kong. Mm. And that is because despite all of the risks, Hong Kong still does offer things that no other center offers in Asia. It has a massive international market. It is the third largest stock market in the world. It has incredible flows of money between the US and China and other countries. Uh, it has a great connectivity uh, to all parts of Asia and to Europe, etc. So there are some things that make Hong Kong a very good place, including its tax regime as well. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. There were a couple of other statistics and they, it all, it's all weaved in together. But a quarter, just over a quarter of respondents here saying actually they feel safer as a result, which was fascinating to me. If that just means, look, we're not going to see regular protests, because obviously that's also destabilizing for businesses. But the other issue, to your point about Chinese law or who rules here ultimately, the extradition to the mainland, 45% of people saying that this could be a game changer for its, its sort of heart, heartland as a, a financial centre of the world. These are both very right. important markers. Yes, it is. And, uh, you know, it's it's a difficult time. As I was saying, there's no the new normal doesn't feel normal. And people are clearly expressing that in this survey. The, the comments were both deep and, and sometimes emotional. And it is understandable that there is a segment in the survey that feel uh, having the national security law and a lack of protests and a lack of violence in the streets is very important to them for their sense of safety and and also for the importance of Hong Kong as an international business center. And that's a very different feeling from people who would rather have free speech and, and worry about um, their own personal abilities uh, to do business and live in Hong Kong. So there are different sides to the story, of course, like, like anything. Yes, but at the heart of it, a very uncertain moment. Tara Joseph. Thank you so much for joining us, the uh, President of American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong. Always great to have uh, your insights. Thank you. Thank All right, you. coming up on the show, the life-saving medical gear sent through the sky and dropped off right at your door. Delivery by drone takes another leap forward. This is next. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show. Nobody on earth should be more than 30 minutes away from a potential drone delivery. That's the sky high, literally, ambition from a company shipping PPE using drones in the United States. Zipline perfected the technology in Africa and says it's responsible for 70% of blood supplies delivered in Rwanda outside the capital Kigali. 
before we bring in the CEO. Let me show you how it works in the US. The journey begins at a fulfillment center at North Carolina, where a packet of PPE is loaded on board a drone. The aircraft is launched. It flies 50 kilometers to Huntersville Medical Center, where the parcel is then dropped by parachute to be collected on the ground, ready to use. I'm staring at the pictures as I'm reading it and writing. It's very exciting. Keller Renato, who's the CEO and co-founder of Zipline, and he joins us now. Keller, great to have you on the um, on the show. I want to talk about the, the medical aspects of this, actually, but it, the technology is quite fascinating. Just talk us through this, because the accuracy of landing is key, and so is how you collect the drones once you've delivered yeah, well, thanks for having me, Julia. And, uh, you know, we try to keep the technology as simple to use as possible. So um, any doctor or nurse in our service network can send a, uh, a text message to Zipline or order through an app. Uh, and we will basically dispatch a product instantly from our distribution center um, by uh, loading the package into a drone or autonomous aircraft that flies to the location, and then we deliver into their mailbox, which is the size of about uh, a couple parking spaces. Um, once the package is delivered, the vehicle will turn around, fly itself home, and once it gets back to the distribution center, um, we recover the vehicle uh, using a system that looks a little bit like something you'd find on an aircraft carrier. Uh, but this is a really nice, safe way to basically launch and land vehicles uh, so that these vehicles can be operating in, in, in a reliable way that people can depend on with their lives. And the landing is so soft that you see actually people can catch these parcels if they're waiting on the ground in that sort of post box area, as you call it. Yeah, the delivery experience is pretty magical. The idea is that anybody with a cell phone uh, can place an order and receive a package wherever they are. So let's talk about what you're doing in the United States, because I mentioned there that you perfected the technique in places like Ghana and Rwanda. But obviously operating drones in the United States is something very different. We started uh, we, we originally launched our service in Rwanda in 2016. So we've now had four years to really get um, the service to scale. Uh, and to the point where, as you mentioned today, we're delivering over 70 percent of the national blood supply of Rwanda, including 160 different uh, public health products. So most of the medicine that's in the public health care supply chain is now delivered on demand by Zipline to thousands of hospitals and health facilities. So on one hand, you know, this is something that we're quite we, we, we really now know how to do at scale. Um, which is why we're so excited to be bringing it to the U.S., especially in the context of a medical emergency where you see COVID-19 spiking in a number of states. Uh, it's We really think it is an obvious need for hospitals to have access to instant contactless delivery so that they can uh, uh, you know, extend the reach of healthcare systems into patients' homes. It's quite fascinating. I mean, if I think of even just the terrain, in places like Rwanda, it, it makes sense to me that this is surely probably quicker and more cost effective, um, a cost effective way of getting the, the PPE out to people. But again, I bring it back to the United States and I wonder whether in many cases the existing resources that we have, whether it's UPS or Amazon or FedEx, isn't perhaps equivalent, if not more efficient. What's your response? I think that, uh, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people 
tend to look at the work that we've done in Rwanda and Ghana and assume that the reason it works is that like there aren't roads to the hospitals or health facilities. And that's actually not true. There are good roads to all of the thousands of hospitals and health facilities generally that we serve. So the value isn't so much like the lack of infrastructure. It's more around a really responsive logistic system so that when a doctor or nurse needs something, they can get it so quickly that a patient doesn't actually realize the product wasn't stocked at the hospital or health facility to begin with. And that need is universal. It's the same between hospitals and health facilities um, in any country in the world. Uh, and it's something that can really only be delivered by an autonomous instant logistic system like this one. You really can't do that with traditional logistic systems like big delivery trucks that might go uh, to, to a location every 24 hours or less. It makes sense. What does the future hold? Is it going to be about, as I mentioned, the ambition to continue to deliver PPE wherever you are operating in the world? Or could you see this expanding to other products, for example? And will that require um, changes to the drone to be able to carry heavier loads perhaps as well? We absolutely anticipate expanding the service uh, in the U.S. in the same way that we've expanded the service in other countries. So we, we've always started with the most urgently needed kind of emergency products. In this case, Zipline has delivered many thousands of units of PPE to, um, to hospitals in the greater Charlotte area. Uh, but we absolutely, even just contained to COVID-19, we think there's a lot of opportunity to start delivering uh, many different treatments that chronic care patients might need directly to their homes. If those patients uh, are immunocompromised or elderly, then these are the patients that need to be staying at home and that you actually don't want coming into the hospitals to receive their treatments. This is something that we're already doing to help other governments in the world combat uh, COVID-19. And then beyond that, when a vaccine is developed, there's a lot of concern right. and talk right now about how the logistics of that is going to work and how do we make sure that access is equal uh, between people who either live in rural areas and live in cities um, or people who live in different parts of the country. And so I think that a system like this that can basically where you can keep inventory centralized and send it to any GPS coordinate when it's needed and when you have a patient who needs to be vaccinated is a really powerful, exciting option, especially if that vaccine is going to be cold chain dependent or require, um, you know, uh, uh, freezing temperatures in order to stay potent. This is those kinds of challenges are really going to require new modes of logistics in order for the U.S. to respond to this pandemic. You know, that was going to be my final question. Vaccine deliveries, the distribution network on this is going to be an incredible challenge. Come back and talk to us soon, please, because this is just scratching the surface, I know, of um, your ambitions and your plans. Fantastic work. And um, I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Keller Renardo, the so CEO and co-founder of Zipline. Thank you. All right, so ahead, how a growing political dispute now leaving many TikTok stars around the world in limbo. Find out what that is up next. Welcome back to First Move. As we discussed yesterday on the show, TikTok is owned uh, under renewed scrutiny over its ties to China. Its Chinese owner, of course, the popular video streaming app is already banned in India. And the growing international storm is leaving many video stars stuck in a political battle, as Haddas Gold reports. I have about over 3 million followers on TikTok. Well, I had over 3 million followers on TikTok. 
Indian TikTok stars like Paras Tomar are scrambling to adjust to life and business after India banned the popular app last month. New Delhi warning it poses a threat to sovereignty and integrity following recent clashes in a disputed border region with China. The ban on TikTok was mixed sentiments. Now, uh, it was a question for most people, which is a mix of uh, their patriotism being questioned versus the amount of money that you were making. TikTok is owned by ByteDance, a Beijing-based company that has been pushed to the front lines of international diplomacy. Now the United States is also considering a ban, warning that because of a national security law, TikTok data could end up in the hands of the Chinese government. We're taking this very seriously. We're, we're, we're certainly looking at it. We've worked on this very issue for a long time. Mousy, mousy. A possibility that makes TikTok influencers like Jake Sweet, with more than 6 million followers, nervous. By banning both of these these countries from using TikTok, it's going to have a phenomenal impact on me and like thousands and thousands of other creators who put content out there a lot. I mean, one of my videos, I think it had 110 million views, and that was primarily U.S. and um, and Indian audience. Several experts tell CNN that though TikTok's links to a Chinese company are worthy of concern, most of it is data that just wouldn't be that useful for real espionage. Oh, this is mostly a political move. It depends on what you're doing that might be of interest to the Chinese government. Uh, If you are, again, an activist in Hong Kong, if you are a whistleblower on, you know, Chinese government corruption, I would not recommend installing TikTok on your phone. But, you know, for your average dancing teenager, probably it's fine. It's not just the U.S. government that's concerned. Wells Fargo recently asked its employees to remove TikTok from their corporate-owned devices. TikTok says it never has and never will share data with the Chinese government and that data from its U.S. users is not stored in China. But Jake Sweet is already trying to diversify and move his audience to other platforms like YouTube and Instagram in preparation for a potential U.S. ban. I still want to be doing what I love, and I'm, uh, while, whilst all this is happening, obviously concerns are raising, I'm slowly moving my audience over just as like a safety backup. For now, TikTokers are still safe. But as U.S.-China tensions rise, millions of the app's fans worry that they may be approaching their last lip-sync dance. Hadass Gold, CNN, London. Perhaps Apple or Google should look at buying TikTok U.S. from ByteDance. Just saying. That's it for the show. I'm Julia Chatterley. You've been watching First Move. Stay safe, and I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.